0: Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Eyes Have It by Philip K. Dick. First published in Science Fiction Stories, Issue 1, from
1: 1953. This is a, uh, a neat story, Jesse. This is... From the earliest part of Philip K. Dick's career, long before he would produce the things that we have seen twisted into such good and bad movies as um, Blade Runner, which was terrific, and others, which I won't mention, that, uh, that aren't as terrific. Uh, he's, he's somebody who confuses our sense of reality a lot. He mm-hmm. talks about not being able to know what's real and what isn't real in very interesting, engaging terms, right within the heart of genre fiction. Uh, in fact, as you probably know, he wrote a dozen nonfiction novel, I mean, non-science fiction or fantasy novels. Uh, and in his lifetime, he was only able to publish one of them, mm-hmm. um, although all of his fantasy and science fiction got published uh, easily, although at very low pay rates because that's what genre fiction paid in those days. This is a story too about what world really is out there. And are we able to perceive the the true world or are we seeing a mystified world? Um, But it's a world where the, the weirdness seems to reside in the very act of reading. Mm So, I'm wondering, uh, since it's a very short story, um, maybe you'll just read it to us. I
0: will. I I love to read Philip K. Dick, and reading Philip K. Dick aloud is even more fun. So I'll, I'll read it through. It's only about seven minutes long. It goes like this. The Eyes Have It by Philip K. Dick. It was quite by accident I discovered this incredible invasion of Earth by life forms from another planet. As yet, I haven't done anything about it. I can't think of anything to do. I wrote to the government, and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. Anyhow, the whole thing is known. I'm not the first to discover it. Maybe it's even under control. I was sitting in my easy chair, idly turning the pages of a paperback book someone had left on the bus, when I came across the reference that first put me on the trail. For a moment, I didn't respond. It took some time for the full import to sink in. After I'd comprehended it, it seemed seemed odd I hadn't noticed it right away. The reference was clearly to a non-human species of incredible properties, not indigenous to earth. A species, I hasten to point out, customarily masquerading as ordinary human beings. Their disguise, however, became transparent in the face of the following observations by the author. It was at once obvious the author knew everything, knew everything, and was taking it in his stride. The line, and I tremble, remembering it even now, read, His eyes slowly roved about the room. Vague chills assailed me. I tried to picture the eyes. Did they roll like dimes? The passage indicated not. They seemed to move through the air, not over the surface. Rather rapidly, apparently. No one in the story was surprised. That was what tipped me off. No sign of amazement at such an outrageous thing. Later, the matter was amplified. His eyes moved from person to person. There it was in a nutshell. The eyes had clearly come apart from the rest of him and were on their own. My heart pounded and my breath choked in my windpipe. I had stumbled on an accidental... Meaning of... Well, mention of totally unfamiliar of a totally unfamiliar race, obviously non-terrestrial. Yet to the characters in the book, it was perfectly natural, which suggested they belong to the same species. And the author? A slow suspicion burned in my mind. The author was taking it rather too easily in his stride. Evidently, he felt this was quite a usual thing. He made absolutely no attempt to conceal his knowledge. The story continued. Presently, his eyes fastened on Julia." Julia, being a lady, had at least the breeding to feel indignant. She is described as blushing and knitting her brows angrily. At this, I sighed with relief. They weren't all non-terrestrials. The narrative continues. Slowly, calmly, his eyes examined every inch of her. Great, Scott! But here the girl turned and stomped off, and the matter ended. I lay back in my chair, gasping with horror. My wife and family regarded me in wonder. What's wrong, dear? my wife asked. I couldn't tell her. Knowledge like this was too much for the ordinary run-of-the-mill person. I had to keep it to myself. Nothing, I gasped, leaped up, snatched the book, and hurried off out of the room. In the garage, I continued reading. There was more, trembling. I read the next revealing passage. He put his arm around Julia. Presently, she asked him if he would remove his arm. He immediately did so with a smile. It's not said what was done with the arm, after the fellow had removed it. Maybe it was left standing upright in the corner. Maybe it was thrown away. I don't care. In any case, the full meaning was there, staring me right in the face. Here was a race of creatures, capable of removing portions of their anatomy at will. Eyes, arms, and maybe more, without batting an eyelash. My knowledge of biology came in handy at this point. Obviously, they were simple beings, unicellular. Some sort of primitive, single-celled things, being no more developed than a starfish. Starfish can do the same thing, you know. I read on, and came to this incredible revelation, tossed off coolly by the author, without the faintest tremor. Outside the movie theater, we split up. Part of us went inside, part over to the café for dinner. Binary fission, obviously. Splitting in half and forming two entities? Probably each lower half went to the café— it being farther, and the upper halves to the movies. I read on. Hands shaking, I had had really stumbled over onto something here. My mind reeled as I made the, out this passage. I'm afraid there's no doubt about it. Poor Bibney has lost his head again, which was followed by, and Bob says he has utterly no guts. Yet Bibney got around as well as the next person. The next person, however, was just as strange. He was soon described as totally lacking brains. There was no doubt of the thing in the next passage. Julia, whom I had thought to be the one normal person, reveals herself as also being an alien. life-form similar to the rest. Quite deliberately, Julia had given her heart to the young man. It didn't relate what the final disposition of the organ was, but I didn't really care. It was evident Julia had gone right on living in her usual manner, like all the others in the book without heart, arms, eyes, brains, viscera, dividing up into two when the occasion demanded, without a qualm. Thereupon she gave him her hand. I sickened. The rascal now had her hand as well as her heart. I shudder to think what he'd done with them by this time. He took her arm. Not content to wait, he had to start dismantling her on his own. Flushing crimson, I slammed the book shut and leaped to my feet but not in time to escape one last reference to the carefree bits of anatomy whose travels had originally thrown me on the track. Her eyes followed him all the way down the road and across the meadow. I rushed from the garage and back inside the wormhouse, as if the accursed things were following me. My wife and children were playing Monopoly in the kitchen. I joined them and played with frantic fervor, brow feverish, teeth chattering. I had had enough of the thing— I want to hear no more about it. Let them come on. Let them invade Earth. I don't want to get mixed up in it. I have
1: absolutely no stomach for it. (laughs) So you say you like reading Philip K.
0: Dick aloud, eh? I love reading Philip K. Dick aloud as an audiobook. I love Philip K. Dick. His writing is so funny. Even when it's not funny, it's funny.
1: So I think we we need to say though to people who are just hearing it that the title the eyes have it is spelled E Y E S and mm-hmm. the first the first line in the the discarded paperback that the narrator uh, speaks of is his eyes slowly roved about the room. So there's a a play on words here. The eyes have it as opposed to the A-Y-E-S, meaning the affirmatives have it as opposed to the negatives. The eyes have it here. Um, That's an interesting line. I mean, the title is good in some ways, I think, because uh, the book begins and ends with eyes. Right? He, it ends with uh, with the, uh, the book, the, the short story the, the narrator's last line that he quotes is, her eyes followed him all the way down the road and across the meadow mm-hmm. um, so the story begins with eyes it ends with eyes, as far as the story within the story is concerned and so the eyes have it, in fact it's the eyes that first alert the narrator to the strange world that's going on but in another way, it's not a good title, um mm-hmm. I think, because the the main idea here does not need to be read with the eyes, right? The, the homophony, the, the mistake between E-Y-E-S and A-Y-E-S, those homophonous words, um, that mistake is only clear to one if one can read it, if one mm. sees it. However, the mistake in the apprehension of the line his eyes slowly roved about the room you don't need to see that line written out to understand what's going on there are two different ways of reading here Uh, and dick immediately on giving us that line clarifies those vague chills assailed me i tried to picture the eyes again this eye imagery did they roll like dimes Mm-hmm. aha that's what you mean by roving the passage indicated not they seem to move through the air not over the surface aha, of course because the eyes are at eye level rather rapidly apparently no one in the story was surprised that's what tipped me off well of course a good reader a deep reader will listen to what's not said as well as to what is said and here we have a sort of parody of someone who was not just a deep reader, but he's really taken the plunge. He's gone off the cliff and found a whole new way to read the story. We don't have to see it to understand that. However, um, it's a very important point that he is activating here. Um, In in his essay called the uncanny uh, published in 1919, Sigmund Freud talks about uh, words that are uncanny. And he, Points out that both in English and in German, "uncanny" is in some sense the same as the word "canny." Right, so he had an uncanny ability to pick good stocks, and mm-hmm. he had a canny ability to pick good stocks. Sort of the same thing. What what Freud does in this it's a it's a powerful essay. A very it's full of many insights. But one of the insights that I think is uh, quite apt here, he points out that if we take the metaphorical literally we create what he calls the uncanny it, i would call it the fantastic so if you say uh when i was a kid my sister was a real monster mm-hmm. uh, you know it, we all know what it's like if we have siblings to have you know quarrels with our siblings But if I then follow the sentence, when I was a kid, my sister was a real monster. She had fangs and long talons and stayed up all night looking for people from whom she could drink their blood. Then I've literalized it and we're in a fantastic world of vampires. Freud says that it is a simple operation of language. That is to say, the way we understand language, if you take the metaphorical and make it literal, you get the fantastic. And that seems to be what our narrator has done when he suddenly sees those eyes roving about the room um, or when uh, the fellow is asked to remove his arm. Um, But not all of the things that, that occur to give us the odd in this story actually use that process. Some of the language in the story that gives us the... The the uncanny, well, I shouldn't say the, that gives us the, the shock of the unusual, doesn't follow exactly that uh, Freudian uh, device of literalizing the metaphoric. Uh, for example, in that phrase, remove his arm, he put his arm around Julia presently. She asked him if he would remove his arm. He immediately did so with a smile. Uh, the word remove the phrase remove his arm has two possible interpretations, and they really depend upon two different meanings of the word remove. You can remove your arm from a place where you can remove the arm from your body. That's different from the eyes roved around the room. We know what roving means, and to have the uh, the normal metaphoric understanding where you're looking around the room with your eyes that's actually a metaphoric use of the word to rove. Um, I could have said he glanced around the room, not a problem. If I'd said he his eyes flew from one person to the other, that would be <laughs> metaphoric, and we could literalize it and get the uncanny. By the way, this this idea of removing the arm, which is reminding us of the Plural signification in language, the fact that a given phrase or word can have more than one meaning, even without the literalizing of the metaphoric. Uh, that particular example, remove his arm, actually is the basis for um, a very fine story by Yasunari Kawabata called One Arm, about someone who has the wonderful aesthetic appreciation for the form of a particular geisha, And he asks her if he would be able to to take his her arm away with him. And she says, yes, uh, as long as he doesn't do anything dirty with it. (laughs) He promises he's a real gentleman and he takes her arm and 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 goes off with it and he sleeps next to it. But but chastely, Um, it's interesting to me that that same use of the the duality or the multiplicity of possible ways of reading, which do not depend upon literalizing the metaphoric that, uh, that duality is um, also clear in the next example. That's given in italics that our narrator reads outside the movie theater. We split up part of us went inside part over to the cafe for dinner. Well, there's two ways of thinking split up. You can either say as a group, we split, Or as a bunch of individuals, each of us split. And both of those are perfectly valid readings of the phrase, we split up. Uh, In a way, there's another aspect of the English language being toyed with here. We make a distinction, as you know, between mass nouns and count nouns. So peanut butter comes in masses and peanuts come in counts. So I can say I have less peanut butter, but I have fewer peanuts. Although I can say I have more peanut butter or more peanuts. The the more works for both. But we make a distinction between mass nouns and count nouns. But sometimes that mass count distinction actually is a matter of choice. We hear that much more in British English than we do in American English. So it is quite normal for a sportscaster to say about a... um, a soccer match, a football match, I guess, So I'm putting myself in the English uh, frame, to say of a football match, the team were beaten badly instead of the team was beaten badly because the team is being understood as a bunch of different individuals who are taken together. So we split our upper bodies and our lower bodies. We're a bunch of individuals who are doing the splitting as opposed to the group split half the one way, half the people the other way. And with some things as in the word committee or the word government, sometimes you'll hear, um, a British, uh, announcer in the very same report, say the government were disappointed <laughs> and the government was disappointed. Well, um, and it's just two different ways of thinking of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, so we have here, in The Eyes Have It, the title, we have a homophony as the underlying motivation for the, uh, the joke. But that depends upon actually seeing, whereas most of what we get depends upon literalizing the metaphoric. But some things like remove his arm have to do with two ways of looking at something or as with uh, we split up. It's two ways of thinking about something. So I guess what I would suggest is that what makes this such a really fine story philosophically, as well as just being fun to listen to. Right. I have absolutely no stomach for it. This poor narrator doesn't even realize that he's fallen into the same trap. He's one of them. (laughs) He's exactly. And so are we. And that's the point is that by having these different rationales or uh, foundations for the jokes, collectively, what the story seems to be implying is folks language is untrustworthy. You think that you know what's going on because you hear it reported to you, but you don't. Not because someone isn't trying to tell you the truth as they understand it, but because language can't be trusted. Language itself is the problem. So the eyes have it because the eyes see language. And I, I think that it's really a story about what it means to read stories.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a there's a really f- my favorite ha- uh, word that has you know, its own meaning and its opposite meaning in the same word is... uh, I came to mind when you were talking about, you know, how when you've got a word that can have different meanings but also retains its own meaning, we get, like, the sense of, I'm not not hungry, you know, means I'm hungry. (laughs) Right. But I also means, like, it it doesn't mean I'm hungry, it means I could eat, right? (laughs) Um, Which is not the same as being hungry. And then... Uh, My favorite one, though, is when the government says uh, some action happens in the news and they say, we didn't sanction that.
1: (laughs) Right. And which way (laughs) does sanction go?
0: I sanctioned those actions means we said it was fine. And we sanctioned them means uh, we punished them. Exactly.
1: Exactly. For their action. Those are so-called Janus words, right? They look in both. Yeah, indeed.
0: Um, One of the one of the really funny reviews i read um one reviewer wrote about the metaphorical and the literal language um in this story he said um uh, a sentence like he fired his gun in a western makes a lot of sense uh in the normal way we think of it but he fired his gun in erotica is a completely different kind of uh meaning
1: <laughs> sure but <laughs> it's but you know an adjective is a word that modifies a noun, but presumably the noun is still the same. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a brown house is still a house, right? A happy person is still a person. But if I were to say that the mafioso fired his top gun, (laughs) we wouldn't be talking about uh, something made of metal at all. We'd be talking about an employee.
0: Yeah, and there's something wonderful about Uh, the childlike way philip k dick approaches everything he's he's you know all children are like natural scientists when they're born right they just run around tasting and touching and experimenting with everything um and most people have that sort of you know ground out of them by life or school or whatever it is but in the end um some people manage to to keep it and the narrator in this story, uh, to me, is very much a Philip K. Dick style. You know, he—it's him basically, because he's sitting in his easy chair after having taken the bus uh, back from his, you know, job at the record store or wherever. <laughs> uh, found a paperback on the bus that somebody's abandoned, probably because it's a terrible, boring book. And instead of seeing it as a terrible, boring book, I mean, the story that we get in *The Eyes Have It* about what the narrator's reading. Is incredibly mundane, uh, crappy, lo- crappily written love story. Right? There's nothing interesting about it. It's full of cliche. Um, some lady giving uh, some guy her heart, and then she doesn't like him on the arm. There's a guy who has who's completely brainless. Right? It's it's very mundanely written. Instead, Philip K. Dick grabs this book and he says, "Oh my God! I've uncovered an ins- a conspiracy. Everybody knows about it." Right. And when I wrote to the government, they sent me back a a book about how to a pamphlet about how to repair and maintain frame houses. You know. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I I just think that this is this is so utterly Philip K. Dickian, and the magazine that is published in is the very first issue of a new magazine called Science Fiction Stories. It describes it as a fantasy, which is pretty funny because. Actually, it's a mundane story about a crazy man, and also it's a horror story about an alien invasion of Earth, and also it's uh, fantasy.
1: (laughs) It's everything, right? You you know, one of the things that's always a problem with Dick, um, there was that period when he was on amphetamines. He produced something like 16 novels in 10 years, Mm -hmm. Um, and some of them are among his worst. And some of them are among his very best, like Ubik um, and and, and, uh, the man in the high castle. Um, His work seems uneven. And so one always has to ask, how much did this guy actually know about what he was doing? Or was he just so super sensitive to the world around him, the culture world around him, that he, when he was good, he just packed stuff in without even knowing. So I'm going to try to put aside for a moment the, the question of how much Dick knew. And just for the sake of humoring me, I'd like to suggest that maybe he knew a lot, whether he knew it consciously or unconsciously, it was in him. If you go back and read this opening again. I wrote to the government and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. And you got to think what well, first is like, Oh my God, it's a satire of government. You know, you send them this, this statement that the world is coming to an end and things are terrible. And they send you back this simple department of agriculture, uh, pamphlet for home for, uh, you know, the extension service. But if you go deeper and you say, What could this guy have written to the government that would have generated this response? Having read the story, I can think of two things. He could have have written to them and said, things are falling apart. (laughs) Things that shouldn't come apart are falling apart. Or he could have said, unicellular organisms are attacking us in our homes. And so the government, instead of writing back and saying, you are a crazy person, they said, okay, you think that things are falling apart? Or okay, you think you have an infestation? Here is a pamphlet on how to take care of frame houses, repair and maintenance of frame houses. It makes perfect sense what the government did if you you know read it backwards. Right? Here's another he gets this story from a paperback book that someone left on the bus. Now, today's readers are probably not going to realize this, but although paperback publication began about 1938, it was only in 1952 that original paperback publication began. Betty and Ian Ballantyne started publishing books that previously would have been published as hardbacks, and then later the cheap edition would come out, They started publishing books originally as paperbacks, and they did this in order to make genre sales uh, more widespread, quite successfully. Ballantine Books is to this day an important imprint. And one of the genres that they first focused on was science fiction. So one can easily imagine in 1953, when this story came out, that Philip K. Dick is aware that suddenly there are paperback books around cheap editions of genre stuff. And so our poor reader, our protagonist, picks it up and he thinks it's a science fiction book. Right. (laughs) And so thinking it's a science fiction book, he reads it as if it's a science fiction book. And phrases like his eyes slowly roved about the room get read differently because he thinks it's a science fiction book. Interestingly, when he says her brows knitted, she was knitting her brows angrily, um, he doesn't notice that that's another metaphor. You know, you can see you know, the, the knitting needles going and putting the brows together. It just goes right by. So that's an early hint in the novel in the, in the story that Dick knows that what he's talking about isn't one function of language or another function of language, but in fact, language. It's language that makes things weird. But, but, we want it weird. What happens when the guy sees that the eyes are following the the other fellow, the other character, down the road and across the meadow? If you can follow down that road and across that meadow, where are you? Well, where you are is... In a world that no longer can see the order, the grammatical rules, the semantic certainty of language as a reliable foundation for your life. So he rushes into the house where his wife and children, right, the family, are playing Monopoly in the kitchen. Mm. Monopoly is a game it is rule constrained it gives us a sense that we can play here in a world where things won't take on double meanings it happens to be a world this is 1953 america that aims to mimic capitalism to settle everything in its ordered place and it happens to be as many people know and would have known in 1953 that the names of the different locations on the Monopoly board are themselves lifted from Atlantic City, New Jersey. So the game itself tries to be a representation of capitalism at work in a real town. And by getting into that, he can relax again. I joined them and played with frantic fervor, brow feverish, teeth chattering. I had had enough of the thing. I want to hear no more about it. Let them come on. Let them invade Earth. I don't want to get mixed up in it. I have absolutely no stomach for it. And having been settled by the game playing in the family, by finding a place in which the rules and the rulership of the monopoly make him feel that the world is knowable, at that point, he is sufficiently safe from the uncertainty of language, that he doesn't even realize that he has shown himself to be another maker of those funny sentences. I have absolutely no stomach for it. But there's always more to say.